Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 951 with guest Michael Kennedy. Recorded live Friday, February 7th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. And uh, we're back in the studio, of course, after a long and grueling road trip. Richard, how are you doing out there, man? How's well, the weather? You know, finally home. It's somewhat, I don't know if it's because I don't have to go back out on the road immediately or if it's actually being home for two weeks. Starting to fix things around the house, you know. No. Upgrade servers in the closet and... I, I did inventory. You know, the, the media center space in my house yeah. had just turned into this nest of wires. And I realized how it got like that. Mm-hmm. I did inventory. We have six video game machines. Oh. I don't know how this happened. You know, I, I never got video game machines for the kids. Are you talking se. about gaming consoles? Gaming consoles. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, and and the the girls always just had Game Boys and DSs and things like that. It wasn't until I ended up with an Xbox 360 as a gift from Microsoft that mm-hmm. I actually set them up with Rock Band and things like that. But mm-hmm. now we have the Xbox 360, we have a PS3, we yep. have a Wii U, we have an Xbox One, we have an Ouya, and we yeah. have a Wii. Oh, jeez. So just wiring all that, it, it, no wonder it was a mess. So I I switched out the receiver. Uh, switch over to HDMI for everything and just been realigning the whole media closet to make it tidy. And, uh, it's been, it's nice. It's fun. It's fun, fun to do something technical that isn't just work. Right. Sure. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. Yeah. Well, hey, man, let's, uh, jump into Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> all right. What do you got? Well, I know this isn't very Python esque or web esque at all, but right. uh, it's it's a little Xamily, and I thought it deserved a little shout out. I love that you said Xamily. What Zamily. a good line! Yeah, um, you know, Xaml is one of those technologies that's been around for a while, and most of the hype was, you know, in the in the early days of Xaml, but there hasn't been a lot of stuff published lately, and of course, people are using, uh, you know. Visual Studio 2013, they're using Blend for Visual Studio 2013, and going and finding examples and things that use those modern tools is difficult because most of the stuff that's published was is, is a few years old. Right. However, 
Michael Perry. You know Michael Perry. Yeah, I know Michael Perry, regular contributor to the show. Yeah. He has done a course on XAML patterns for Pluralsight. Oh, interesting. And it was published June 7th, 2013. So it's current and it's using the current stuff. So go to tinyurl.com slash XAML patterns. And this is Gang of Four Patterns, UI patterns, using Blend for Visual Studio and Visual Studio and showing uh, how to do all that stuff. And, and we're talking some serious XAML here. Nice. Very, very cool course. And it's got already got great reviews. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and Michael's such a good thinker. You know, it's that mathematician mind yep. that just sort of get thing, gets things in order. So the right guy for the right class. And it turns no out question. I was looking for this kind of thing and I needed some XAML help. And that's where I ended up. And I was like, this is great and too good not to share. Awesome. So there you go. Uh, tinyurl.com slash XAML patterns. No one learned to love it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 922, and that's the one we did a while back with Mark Greenway. Mm -hmm. It's disturbing when you realize that the 900s are still a while back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? And this show, and that was the show we did on MongoDB on Azure. Mm -hmm. And uh, this particular comment I thought was especially relevant. This is from Rasmus Christensen, who says, uh, yet another great show. In the start of the show, you talk about a previous comment with RavenDB, because of course, MongoDB, RavenDB, all these NoSQL databases, RavenDB not having a free version. And this yeah. makes me think about all this stuff around versions. In my previous job, we had a discussion about which software we could use, especially with third-party components, with the introduction of stuff like NuGet that makes it really, really easy to bring those components in. Many companies that are looking at software, especially third-party software, look at something that hasn't reached version 1.0 yet and consider it a immature product. Mm. The fact is today that many products are actually quite mature. They just haven't upgraded the version number to one. <laughs> you know, they, they, I, and they, I mean, you know, real developers don't think about this stuff. Yeah. You just keep building the software. The fact that you've left it at 0 0.1 or at 0 0.5, it doesn't even hit them that this might actually stop someone from using the product. And Rasmus goes on to hit this exact point. He says, the fact is today many products are really mature and be used in other places, even though they're not version one. You can even get support if you want, which may have not been true in the past, but it's pretty common these days. Right. And he mentions a particular product off of GitHub called Rebus, which is sitting at version 0.5. Hmm. And his company wouldn't use it because it wasn't mature. Mm -hmm. And there were even tweets and stuff around this saying, is the product only half done because it's currently at 0.5? Yeah. So, you know, Rasmus's real point here is for, for the folks that are working in the open source world, that are doing stuff on GitHub and so forth, think about what your version number says about your product. Because it's actually impairing other developers out there from being able to use it if the number doesn't feel right, doesn't feel safe. You know, if you've got people using your product in the field, declare a V1. Right. Yeah. And I think that I guess you can get away with it if you're Google and have Gmail beta forever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But there never was really a version number. It's just a beta, right? Yeah. But the fact that you're the, it's just, I think he brought up a hugely important point that if, Folks are actually looking at these version numbers and making decisions on the quality of your software from the number. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that's what they're doing. Right. 
So we should be thinking about this. Good point. So Rasmus, thank you so much for your thinking. This really got me jazzed up, and I like it a lot. I'm firing a .NET Rocks mug out to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And with that, let me introduce our guest, Michael Kennedy. He's an author, an instructor, and the technical curriculum director at Develop Mentor. He's co-creator and lead developer for Learning Line, Develop Mentor's online training platform. Michael is an experienced software developer and trainer, passionate about .NET, MongoDB, Python, and anything related to the web. He's the author of Develop Mentor's MongoDB and Python courses and a member of the MongoDB Masters community. Follow him on Twitter at mkennedy. Welcome, Michael. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. So python.net, we haven't talked about Python in a while. No. And uh, you, you, for, Let's just say, what is it and why should I care as a .NET developer? Right. So, you know, Python is typically thought of as just this open source thing. It runs on Linux and... You know, I'm a Windows developer guy, so I, I pretty much stick with .NET, right? Mm. And I think there's, there's two really interesting things about Python that, you know, the typical .NET developer should really be interested in or inspired by. One is, with the proliferation of all these different devices and platforms, it's getting harder and harder and harder to write code that you can sort of run everywhere, Right. There's, there's only more devices coming out. There's not fewer and more platforms. Mm. And Python runs pretty much everywhere. And so that's, that's pretty neat. We've got, you know, Iron Python, which is sort of the, the .NET extension of Python. And we'll talk more about that. So that's, that's super interesting. And then maybe from a more pure perspective, if you look at the Python language and the Python ecosystem, there is an amazing parallel between the things in .NET that we think make .NET special and things in Python. So, you know, if I gave you a list, uh, or I made you give me a list of all the things in .NET that make it really compelling to work with, and you might even think the only place these show up are places like .NET, you know, think link or, or something like that, for example. Mm. You'll see that many of those actually exist in some other form in Python and and it's it's really a, a comfortable language for .NET developers, and so I, I think there's a lot lot to look into there. So Python has a, a sort of uh, entity framework equivalent, an MVC yep. equivalent, and a link yep. equivalent, and all of those good high level things that we enjoy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And when you say it runs everywhere, do you mean it runs on my Android phone? There's so there's I say almost. I mean, let me put almost right. <laughs> so. The mobile story is not super awesome for Python. Uh, there's some work that, that people have done to get it to run on mobile. Um, there's things like Pi, OBJC, Objective-C for doing stuff on like native Mac right. platforms and, and things like that. But, but it's I, really I a web really, technology and runs on, on web servers, really, is what we're talking about, right? For the most part, you can build GUIs. Mm -hmm. you know, so you know, a notable example is Dropbox, like pretty much all of Dropbox. Is Python, including the stuff that you get on your on your Mac or on your PC to manage? Really? You know, so little, that little thing in the in the 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 taskbar tray that pops up is a Python app? 
That is my understanding. I don't work at Python or at Dropbox, but um, if you go and look through it, it, it's, it is using Python in, in some form or another. Is it 100% Python? I don't know. Huh. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Interesting. Yeah, the guy who um, founded Python, Guido Van Rossum, um, he was at Google, but he's moved over to Dropbox and he works there now. Hmm. I didn't know you could build Windows apps with Python. Yeah, it's not super easy. You have to basically layer it on top of some other cross-platform mm-hmm. um, system. Um, Qt is probably Q- Qt. I'm not sure how people say it, but that's probably the most popular one. There's some really nice-looking cross-platform apps built there, and then there's sort of Python extensions on top of that. All right. The equivalent of what you might think of like Xamarin for um, uh, for iOS, you've got sort of Python equivalents for the Qt framework, like sort of manage extensions on top of it. All right. So, but so far it doesn't sound like I'm too convinced that I want to learn a whole new thing. Is there anything that Python has that it, that is going to be a killer feature for me that, you know, I don't get in .NET or C sharp? Sure. So there's a couple of killer features in there and a bunch of just really nice ones, right? One of the killer features I think is just the simplicity of the language. So, we can talk about some of the, the parallels from the .NET language over the, the Python language. But if you sort of put them down on, on, on the screen, you know, the Python code is like a third of what you have to write in .NET. And just the mm. simplicity and the readability of, of the language is really, really powerful. That alone, I think, is, is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. The web story is pretty interesting. If you're doing something in the cloud, um, there's some really uh, interesting advantages to choosing Python there as well. Ooh, such as? Well, um, all the major um, cloud players have some Python variation, right? So if you look at you know, Azure, you can write Python apps and run them there. If you look at Google App Engine, I believe Google App Engine, one of the two languages in the beginning, in the first year or two, uh, their compute uh, part of Google App Engine, the only thing you could do was Python. I think Go was maybe the only other option, mm. but you know they've since added Java to that as well. But for a while, that was your only choice there. Um, there's AWS, of course, mm-hmm. and there's another interesting one called PyCloud, which is for scientific computing. So there's a whole interesting si- uh, story on the the scientific computing side and like the data scientist world with Python. And so PyCloud is basically like a, a massively parallel thing where you can just rent more or less CPUs and go, here, run this, this Python job on all your machines and give me an answer, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's very focused on science. But my point t- towards um, why it has advantages on the cloud was, let's just take um, AWS, for example, sure. right? Amazon Web Services, EC2. If I'm going to go up there and if I want to... Uh, spin up some machines, I could spin up a Windows machines, and that's what we do at Developmenter. All of our infrastructure in you know, our server room has been shut down and moved to EC2 or to some sort of SaaS service, one of the right. right? And that's all on Windows, and it's working great. But if I was trying to you know, sort of do that as cheap as possible, there's parity between EC2 and Azure for the Windows instances, but the Linux instances on AWS are like half price. Right. Right, and so if you write Python, you can spin up Linux instances. You can do a lot of really interesting DevOps stuff with um, systems like Chef and Puppet, which mm-hmm. allow you to sort of really script out, just sort of create my, you know, create my infrastructure for me, 
And, and that kind of stuff is, you know, something you can do on Linux and you can't really do on Windows so and, easily. And the so, cost is very, very appealing. Yeah, I mean, if somebody said you can pay half if you write, you can pay half for your cloud infrastructure if you write in Python than if you write in .NET. Yeah. Maybe that's interesting. It, that's, it a darn, on, that's a darn good argument. Yeah, I mean, it depends on your team, right? Like, if you've got a bunch of guys and they're really passionate about .NET, and, you know, to make them all go do Python if they don't want to, that's probably going to be, you know, less good. But if, if they didn't really care, you know, then I think mm. that's an interesting argument for being able to choose the Linux instances. What is the, what is the, you said uh, the simplicity of the language, and, and there's just a whole bunch of, a lot less code. What is the structure or the shape of a Python program look like? Yeah, so that's, that's probably the biggest difference and the thing that we'll, we'll sort of, you'll see right away, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's different. Um, Python sort of defines its code blocks and its sections, its classes, methods, if statements, and so on, with white space. So you define a method by writing the name, and you'd say something like def, method name, parenthesis, colon. And then the body of the method is indented. So four spaces in, everything that's four spaces in, that's in the method. And then when you stop indenting, you're no longer in the method. You're now back to you know, the next method or something like that. And if you're in an if statement, you'd indent twice and so on. Huh. Okay, so, so that sounds really funky, and it sounds really tedious. And if you were to write code in Notepad, it would be crazy painful, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. If you've got three spaces and, and four spaces, that's a problem. Like the, That'll actually cause a runtime error. And what so if you've got a tab that looks like it's four spaces? Yeah, so um, tabs would also be a problem. So basically, you need to configure your editor uh, to just always use spaces. Um, so there's a bunch of really cool IDEs you can choose. Um, the two ones that I would put right at the top are one called PyCharm from uh, the guys who make ReSharper, JetBrains. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just doing some stuff with them yesterday, actually. And PyCharm is a super nice IDE. I mean, imagine the guys who built ReSharper went and from scratch built up a new alternate version of Visual Studio. Like That would be super awesome, right? With all the mm. cool stuff that ReSharper does. Mm. Well, that's, Py, that's PyCharm for Python, right? They did that for Python. Is it PyCharm so, or PyCharm? Yeah, PyCharm. Okay. Right? PyCharm. A lot of things in Python that are, you know, they, they start with PY. Well, I noticed PyCloud starts with PI, so. Right, right. That's because of the scientific. Uh, oh, okay. I thought it was because it was Python. <laughs> no, sorry. That's the okay. scientific component of it. Gotcha. So um, PyCharm, super interesting. When you go in there and you type, you know, so it sounds like this the shape is going to be really in the way and it's going to be annoying, but you go to these IDEs and, and you type, you hit enter after you define a method. It knows it's got to indent, so it just indents for you. Right. And if you do an if statement and you hit enter, it just knows to indent, and it really manages it well. And even though it spaces, you hit backspace, it, it goes back four spaces, things like that. So excellent uh, Excellent way to write it there. And after you get over the initial shock, yeah, there's a which is not to be discarded, right? But you go back and go back to write some .NET code, and you're like, wow, there's all these parentheses and curly braces. Right, it and seems just, like a lot of ceremony. There's there's way more ceremony in a lot of cases than you need. And I, you know, a couple of years ago, I never would have believed believed it, but it's even though. You know, you're really comfortable with that ceremony. It's it's not as much fun if you realize you can live without it. Yeah. And and just to round it out, by the way, the I, the other IDE is actually Visual Studio that I would put huh. at the top. So Visual Studio does a good a good job with uh, Iron Python. Then, so 
that would be what you would sort of think, right? Like, okay, I got my Visual Studio Professional and I can do this cool Iron Python thing. And that is true, but it's way more than that. There's this, um, this sort of extension. I'm not sure what you would call it, but this thing called uh, Python Tools for Visual Studio. And you can get Visual Studio for free with Python Tools for Visual Studio. You know how there's the Visual Studio shell that doesn't really do much? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, so can, uh, the Express Edition. It's not the it's not an express edition. It's like a, the hosted shell or something. I'm not I don't remember what it's called, but there's a way to just basically you know how um like SQL Server, it's kind of hosted within Visual Studio as well, right? When the tools it's it's that it's that shell that you can get like Team Explorer is for TFS as well. Got it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you can get that for free basically, and you get power, uh, Python tools for Visual Studio. And it will do regular Python, the Python you run on Linux or uh, OS X or whatever, and on Windows. It will also do Iron Python. It will do the web frameworks, like uh, I believe it does Django. Um, so you can do Iron Python and build um, like uh, UI apps and .NET libraries and so on, which are really interesting. But you can also actually write plain old Python just the way it was you know, invented by the open source guys. In Visual Studio, with IntelliSense, with debugging, everything. And it's free. And do you think, do you like, uh, is that what you develop in Visual Studio? PyCharm. Yeah. Oh, you develop yeah, in Py- PyCharm? PyCharm's, yeah, PyCharm's, you know, I think it's like $100 for the ID. It's not super expensive, and there's a community edition. So it's just a little bit better. You know, in terms of sort of a pure editor, they're, they're both quite, uh, there's, there's a lot of parity between them. Mm. But when you look at how does the how does the IDE manage like the environment behind the scenes and sort of the NuGet equivalent and those types of things, it's it, PyCharm has got a lot more options for doing that type of stuff and like unit testing, code coverage, all those kinds of things are just a little bit cleaner there. So that's why I prefer that one. You know what worries me here, Michael, is that there's so many flavors of Python. That's a legitimate worry, by the way. Yeah, I just, how different are they from each other? So let me just enumerate a few of them. I think there's something like 25 different, what you would consider like runtimes for Python. Sure. I mean, there's a lot. And there's a flavor, so maybe my numbers are off a little bit, right? Like maybe I'm double counting or not counting enough or something. But, yeah, maybe it's 50. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It, there's more <laughs> yeah, yeah. than two. There's definitely more than two, and there's versions of each, right? Like we right. talked about the versioning story for each one of those flavors. But let me just touch on some of the major ones. There's probably four or five that are, are really important. So the most important, the most common one you'll see, and the one what I talked about, I said like the open source guys run, right? The original version of, of Python is something called C Python. So C Python, if, if somebody says say C Python, they basically just mean the regular Python with no, no not selecting a different runtime. Yeah. Sort of raw Python. Yeah. So and this, so is, C, this C is what you get at python.org, this sort of exactly. er Python. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what that is, is that's the implementation of the Python language. It's an interpreted version where basically it takes the Python and tokenizes it into bytecode and then interprets it. And at certain places, either in the language or you know, the, the native built-in parts or third-party libraries, they might have decided, well, this section is not fast enough. So for really high-performance stuff, what we need to do is write this little section in C 
and that can there's ways to integrate with C and sort of extend your Python code. It's kind of like inline assembler in C++ or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you, we talked about the Entity Framework equivalent is something called SQL Alchemy, and there's um, other database uh, libraries like this, like the MongoDB uh, library called uh, PyMongo. They both have the ability to either run in pure Python or use um, C speedups, C-based speedups, where sort of some of the hotspots of the code have been written in C. So that's the main standard story, right? You've got sort of reference-counted, interpreted um, Python with a little bit of C support and a little bit of garbage collection on the back end to to catch the, the cycles. And the language itself is pretty interesting. It looks like a sort of a hybrid of, of Visual Basic and C Sharp. Yeah, it really is. It is quite interesting. And you do see a lot of parallels to VB as well. Yeah, but just not as much, as you say, not as much ceremony. You know, no, no semicolons and, you know, you have the white space thing going on. But Yeah, you can write semicolons. Sure. If you really have to, you know, if you have Chris Sell's disease, which I remember he said, he anytime he writes VB, he has to end every statement with a comment and then a, a semicolon. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah it so looks so- interesting, and it does look very, uh, very, very terse. Yeah, but yeah. also quite structured. Like you said, the the indents are important. It's it is specific white space. Yeah. Right. I want to come back to the other uh, runtimes, but you know, it's it's not terse in the sense that it's unreadable. You know, yeah. Well, th- there's the C competitions for like the most obfuscated yeah. code that in one line, right? Like it's not terse in that sense. No, no, it's, and I didn't mean it's unreadable. Yeah. It's it's just yeah. it's just efficient. Maybe that's the word. Yeah, because yeah. you know, regex is terse too. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's crazy. Yeah. Let me give you an example of something that's kind of funky in the language that uh, it sort of you know exemplifies that. All methods have a return value, right? And that's the convention in Python. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't say return, it just automatically adds a return null. So when you define methods, you don't say the return type because there always is one, and the variables are untyped, even though Python is a strongly typed language in some sense. So, in you know, some it, sense, I love the vagueness. Wait here. a second, <laughs> strongly typed, kind of. So I think. <laughs> what does that mean, really? I believe the way you you would put it together is you would say Python is a strongly typed language with dynamic semantics. Okay, sure. So, so things are are dynamic. Right. The the variables that you pass around, the pointers and so on that you you declare in your code, they have no type. But the things they point at have a type. Sure. Right? It's not like JavaScript where everything is kind of, you know, is sort of more or less is just the same. The, the stuff in Python, like that actually point in, you can ask, is this an instance of this? Could Got it, it be cast to one of those? Yeah. Right. But but you still have this dynamic component to it. That's what I mean. That's my vagueness. So it's almost like variants in the early visual basic space. Which a were little bit, a yes. little scary. But so you know, but not as scary because that. you have testing, right? I mean, and yeah. that's what testing's for. You so what is that. the what is the unit testing story in Python now? So the unit testing story is pretty solid. It's quite similar to what you would expect in .NET. Um, you've got test classes, you've got test methods, you've got an uh, you know the ability to run a bunch of them. You can go to your IDE and say run these. You can go to like PyCharm and right click and say run this these unit tests with code coverage, you know, and you get a nice nice report 
about what, what methods were called by your tests and so on. But it's definitely more important than in C-sharp because when you write code in Python that defines like methods and classes and so on, the, the, you're not defining the structure. You basically have to execute that code and it sort of builds up at runtime the methods and the classes and so on. So if there's a problem, you know, unless you actually execute that somehow, it's not really, you'll never know. There is no compiler, right? In mm -hmm. the default one. Mm -hmm. Now you can come back. So let's come back really quick to the other flavors of Python. Um, we talked about the C Python. There's Iron Python, which is pretty awesome because you write Python code, but it runs on the DLR on top of the .NET framework. That's great. It yeah, also and wouldn't that immediately be the way to go as far as you know making it work in Windows, being able to build a, a Windows app. So that's a really interesting point, and it it very well may be. I believe there are some um, Windows apps, even some stuff going on at Microsoft. I think there was one team that was doing some extensions in Python for that. Um, but yeah, you could definitely do that. Um, when you install Visual Studio, there's a way to do some UI stuff with the Iron Python tools. Right. I, I think your trade-off that you're going to be looking at is, do you want to depend on the .NET framework? Right. Well, and I think if you want to build a Windows app, then there, there's a clear call on that action. I think the bigger question that I hit on earlier here was, or, or at least hinted at was, if I'm writing in Iron Python and then I do want to go to another uh, environment, how much of the code is portable? Sure. So I mean, the, the calls write, of the framework obviously yeah. not, but the, yeah. the syntax itself? The syntax should be pretty much the same. But yeah, the, the things you import, right, you're importing basically assemblies and types from .NET and Iron Python. And then you're, you're working with those. So those, those libraries are going to go away if you switch to CPython, right? But, you know, the, there should be a way to port a lot of that over depending on how much you're leveraging the framework versus other things. So there's a couple of interesting uses of Iron Python, and then there's some reasons to not use it. So the interesting uses are, I've written a .NET app in C-sharp or VB, but I, you know, maybe it's like some sort of scientific app or something, and I want to let sort of the scientists, who are not real programmers, somehow script this thing, right? This, right. You know, most scientists are much more com uh, familiar with Python than they are with like C sharp and compilers and, and so on. And so you can take the DLR and, and Iron Python and use that as a scripting extension for your app written in regular.net. So that's a pretty cool uh, a use of it. So you can use it for um, sort of scripting out your, your code there. The, the reason you might not use it is for that portability reason. Like, what if somebody says, well, you know, it was great we wrote this a couple years ago in Iron Python, but, you know, this whole group over here, they're now using Macs for their, mm. for their science work or whatever. Well, are you going to rewrite that thing from scratch or are you going to just, you know, make a minor tweak? Right. There are ways to take, like, the C Python version and sort of pre-compile that into a single EXE or a dot app on, the, on OS X. Awesome. So you can actually get these sort of distributal EXEs that sort of package into them all of your dependencies in the Python runtime. And you could pass those around as an alternative to building EXEs uh, on you know, .NET. 
Well, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll pick that up in a minute. But right now, Richard, you know what time it is? It must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time for me to announce Rattler, my new web language that plays a loud rattlesnake sound every time it throws an unhandled exception. <laughs> I thought a Rattler was a beer-based drink. Rattler? Yeah, a Rattler. Yeah, it's German. Ah. It's, yeah, it's German. Oh. Yeah, I think I drank, uh, I, was, I was drinking them at, at Oktoberfest. <laughs> I don't remember much after that. Was that the 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 six liter beer that you you said I'm speaking in the morning and I can only have one beer? I think that was a three liter beer and it was quite enough. And no, no, that was not the same place. <laughs> that was at, that was Atlanta. Yeah, that was a tech head, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. That was Scar. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. All right. Well, anyway, it's really time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we do that. Telerik wants you to know that mobile apps are dead. What? Watch as Telerik unveils what comes next. Are you stuck with tools and vendors that make you choose between native, hybrid, or a web-based approach? Well, you don't have to choose anymore. Mobile apps are dead, and there's a new way forward. The new wave is all about building long-lasting and compelling cross-platform and multi-device apps that will forever transform mobile development for the better. Are you ready? Go to mobileappsaredead.com where you'll learn how to pick the right approach for each project, tackle the fragmented and dynamic mobile ecosystem, elevate your productivity and shorten time to market, and create compelling experiences across platforms and devices. Check it out, mobileappsaredead.com, and watch the free online keynote from Telerik, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner. Let me get the clapper ready. Okay. It is Omar Kadan. Congratulations, Omar. Omar gets a DevCraft Complete Collection. That's just about everything Telerik does in one box. It's $2,000 value. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .narocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every show, we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of stuff, technology, to one lucky member of the fan club. Done it two years now, and we like to ask our guests every show, Hey, Michael, if you had 5000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, boy. So this is a great question. I always love to hear people's answers to it. And, you know, I've got pretty much a maxed out laptop that can't get any better. All of my computing equipment is, is pretty nice. So I have, I have a few things I would like, though. One of them is two 30-inch cinema displays from Apple. So Woo! like, you know, sort of panoramic computing, if you will, on right. one hand. And you, you might wonder at first how this next one ties into technology, but I would like an electric bike, like a high-end electric bike. Uh, electric bike, not an exercise have, bike. No, no, not an exercise bike. They have, you can get these electric bikes that will, you know, go up to like 60 or 70 miles an hour. Just, you know, they'll go like 20 miles on these, these things. And just over this really tall hill from my house in downtown Portland, we have all these cool co-working spaces and a lot of interesting tech stuff going on. And I'd like to be able to like bike over there and spend a few hours every day, like working there instead of just always working from home or, you know, down the street to the office or something. So is this a like a, a motor that you put on a regular bicycle? Yeah. It's it's like a, a rim, sort of like a big hub that goes in the back tire or front tire. Hmm. It comes with a battery and you can you know, you can go 
quite far, 20 wow. miles or so on them. And they're, they're like two grand for one of those. So I would, I'd get one of those and I'd go cruise around and spend a lot more time in the tech space locally here. You wow. know, the product that I've been watching closely is called the Rhino, R-Y-N-O, at rhinomotors.com. And it's an electric unicycle. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I remember this. Yeah, just one wheel. I think I have seen that. That's pretty crazy. But it's gyroscopically stabilized. Like it stands up on its own. That is crazy. Awesome. But you you basically control it just by leaning. It's like a Segway that doesn't make you look like a dork. Ah, that's awesome. And it's electric. It is electric. Yes, of course yeah. it is. So those are my two things: big monitors and electric bike. To love it. Yeah. Yeah, and the correct amount of monitors is more, right? Like the, the, <laughs> that's right. There's no limit. I I actually have one of the 30 inch panels as my main screen, and then I hung two 20s in portrait mode on either side of it. So my total screen resolution for my dev machine is 4960 by 1600. That's amazing. The 1600 high is the important part because that means more lines of code. The difference between 1080 high and 1600 high is substantial. It really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm totally with you, man. What I don't like is having two screens so that stuff that pops up in the middle pops up in the gap. So I've been really hooked on making good three-screen rigs so that you really do have a center focal point, and then you have wings with additional information on them. Yeah, 30 inches, that's a big center space. Yeah, it's a lot of screen space. The thing I still battle with when it comes to screen space is, does it make sense to put another row of screens on top? How high should you look? You know, <laughs> the, this whole, this triple rig with the 30 in the center and the 20s in portrait on the side, I had to switch to a rollerball because no mouse pad is big enough. <laughs> like just getting from one end of the screen to the other with a mouse pointer, it's a long way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a five foot yeah, wide crazy. display. You know, it's a lot. That's a lot of mouthing. Yeah. Well, it just look that you actually have to pan back and forth with your eyes. Like you can't take in your whole screen anymore. But I can have, you know, basically the equivalent of four eight and a half by eleven pages up side by side and see them completely. Hmm. Yeah, you're making me jealous. It's awesome. It may, it works. I mean I I believe in your vision, sir. I would suggest <laughs> get the thirty try with wings. You can do uh, it in two video cards, and it's worth it. Yeah. Michael, however, I have two 30s side-by-side, side and I freaking love them. Yeah. So. Awesome. All right. A lot to consider. Thanks, guys. I'll, I'll, when you send the check over, I'll, I'll be sure to think about which one. <laughs> <laughs> All you got to do is win, right? Yeah. That's right. It would Excellent. be spe- fun to spend five grand on a screen rig, just the screens and video cards for an existing machine. Well, that's we a th- built a couple of dev machines for five grand, but sure. to really go for it, that'd be something. Well, sh- that, that's a problem that people don't typically spend money on monitors. I mean, it, the spouse acceptance factor for new monitors that are sort of elaborate, that sort of seems like luxury. You right. Know? On the other hand, if you add up the total number of hours in a given week, that you depend on those screens, yep. they deserve to they, be spent on. They do. They do indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Where were we? All right. We Well, we were talking about the different runtimes. We talked about C Python. We talked about Iron Python. Just mm. to sort of round it out and then we can move on is Java has its own Iron Python variant called Jython. Jython, so yes. We Jython, heard about yeah. that. Yeah, so if you want to do like interop between Java and Python, like you would .NET and Python, then Jython is your thing. The other one that's really mainstream, that's pretty interesting, is something called PyPy. P-Y-P-Y. PyPy. <laughs> PyPy. And so PyPy is a Python runtime built in Python that does JIT compilation, 
like .NET does for C Sharp, but for Python, which is normally an interpreted language. Hmm. So you you know, there's some benchmarks that show it to be five times faster than regular Python. Wow. So if you're doing anything scientific or whatever, that's that's a pretty interesting one. And then the last one is something called stackless Python, which is built specifically for concurrency. Huh. So multi-threading and regular C Python do the interpreters a little a little kludgy. In um, stackless Python, it's all built with like micro threads and you know asynchronous events, and it's pretty interesting for that. Hmm. But to Richard's point, every one of those is like a totally different runtime. Garbage collection is different. Runtime is different. Some of the support for the language features is different. It, you kind of got to choose one and go. And that's what worries me is like now I'm afraid to make a choice, right? Yeah, sure. I, so I, what, what I really want is I want you to tell me that if I choose one, then I need to switch later. It's not that big a deal. I pick up my code and go. But it doesn't you're, feel you're, like it's like that. Your best bet is to go with CPython then because that's what most code is written in. That's what most um, of these other ones are trying to be compatible with. That, right. And the other part is there's um, an equivalent to NuGet called Python Package Index called PyPy, but P-Y-P-I. Sorry, Carl. And <laughs> that, that, there's about 40,000 packages. It's like NuGet. NuGet has about 20,000 packages. PyPy has about 40,000 packages. Most wow. of those built for, yeah, that's pretty awesome, right? So most of those are built for CPython. All right. So if you're going to leverage them, you got to take that into account as well. So part of me feels like for somebody getting started with this, you know, especially if it's a .NET developer, there's a pretty strong call to Iron Python just because it's a low barrier to entry. But you're not done at that point. You, you now you go look at the Python tools for Visual Studio and, you know, heck, even going looking at PyCharm just to say, look, there's a few other paths here. And then you get into the project specific stuff, the strong, uh, science versions, the strong concurrency versions. But yeah. if you really want compatible stuff, you'll end up going all the way back to C Python. And then you have to deal with the challenges of what your dev environments are really going to be like. That's right. I think what you need to do is you need to decide why you would try Python, right? Are you trying it because the inter- the language is interesting, or are you trying it because you're trying to do one of these other things? I want to run EC2 machines at half price compared to .NET. Right. I want to run on Linux, OS X, and Windows equivalently, right? Then those sort of things will help you make those choices, right? But I would say, you know, if people are thinking like, hey, maybe I want to try out this Python stuff, this sounds really interesting, mm-hmm. is, you know, pick a small project and try to build it in Python, right? And you could choose whichever one of these things, runtimes we just talked about that made sense. But, you know, start small and see if it feels right and it's interesting, right? After a week, you'll be pretty competent. It's a simple language. And and just as an aside, like, most of the time with the software that I'm working with, the companies I'm working on, and I, I got to assume that I'm not a unique case here, the return on this software is so great that the cost of tools and licenses and even the hardware is irrelevant. It's it, it's a meaningless amount of money, except when you're just getting, you know, it's only meaningful when you first look at the at the dollars, right? When you're laying out, I mean, bottom line is dropping 100 grand on equipment is kind of scary. It always is. But... You've got when you've got a successful product, you're making a lot, and the the system makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always am surprised. You know, I do a lot of working with many companies, being a development or instructor. So I travel around and work sort of inside a lot of these teams. And you know, it's interesting how people don't provide their developers some of the tools they need, or the right hardware, or 
you know, these guys are getting paid tons of money and somehow, you know, like a $200 license of something or other that would make their whole job better all year is like, oh, we can't get that. You right. Know, it's, which, it's crazy. And so this which is in my experience like, has been that, that the process of getting $200 worth of stuff is exactly the same process as getting $200,000 worth of stuff. And so they're both hard. That's right. That's right. Hey, so what is this thing you have in the notes here? The Zen of Python. Okay. So the Zen of Python, these are, um, there's, is that there's the Zen of Python.com. Uh, you know, it maybe it's if you search for Zen and Python, the the top link that comes up is something called PEP twenty, and PEPs are Python enhancement proposals, and so sort of the official, um, sort of the spec of Python, if mm-hmm. you will. And the Zen the Zen and Python are it says a twenty um, a fourth of aphorisms aphorisms. Yeah, that's yeah. it. It's at the Zen of Python dot com. Tim Peters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's twenty aphorisms. 19 of which have been written down. So these are sort of the things that are guiding principles of the language and the ecosystem. Yeah. So I'm not going to read all of them for you. Oh, but I think we should. I think honestly think we should. They're, they're really good, right? I mean, yeah. these are the things that the guys in the Python community value and are sort of using as guiding principles, right? Beautiful is better than ugly. That's I think we can one. all agree on that. We can agree on that. And it's I think, cool. you know, that could be a Zen of C sharp as well, or a Zen of anything really. It sure could. It should yeah. be if it's not. Yeah. Explicit is better than implicit. Okay, now for for a not a dynamic language, that's a little weird. <laughs> it is a little bit weird. Yes. So there's there's different areas where this shows up. You know, like conversion. So if you think about like JavaScript, mm-hmm. right? If I've got quote one equal equal the number one, is that true or false? Turns out to be true, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of an implicit thing going on. That's crazy. You know, in in Python, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Right, okay. So right. it is strongly Neither, typed. It's just dynamic. It's, exactly. The okay. variables don't have types, but the things that you they point at, they're typed. I got right? it. So you know, it's, you'd have to basically create a an equality operator that says, well, I can be equal to a string, and here's how it happens, right? It's just that the level of explicity, explicit. <laughs> It's, whatever. it's definitely, yeah, the level ex- of explicitity. Explicitity. Yeah, <laughs> this is going Explicitity. I like that. Explicitity. Explicitity. <laughs> yes, the level is definitely in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, right? okay, that's what I wanted to say. That's the rest. That's the important thing. All right, and then, and then simple is better than complex. Totally agreed. Yep. In fact, this is one of the mantras of software development that I've had all my life, which is I do the simplest thing that works. Yes, absolutely. Do the simplest and, thing that works, and that has always served me well. And you are always thinking to yourself, and I'll come back and make this more generalized when I need to, and that'll be pretty soon, and you just don't go back to it. Right. right? You're just like, that That actually worked the whole time, right? It's mm-hmm. been fine. We don't mm-hmm. need to touch this. Yep. So, complex is better than complicated, right? So maybe there's more to it, but at least it's not like overly obfuscated or whatever. Sure. Flat is better than nested. True. That's sort of a, you know, you can have a a loop that has an if statement, and you can either express that if statement in the positive or the negative, right? So you can mm-hmm. have like uh, for each one of these things in here, or for each one of these things in here, you could say if I don't want to process it, continue, and then you you come back and you don't indent anymore, right? Yep. Or you could say if it's true, then have yet another indent. So you can really simplify it that sure way. Sure can, yeah, yeah. In, in a language where white space counts. Sp- 
indentation is not something you want to go after if you don't have to. Very true. Yeah. All right. Sparse is better than dense. You can see that in the language, like how how much less syntaxy stuff is around uh, to define things like classes and methods. Syntaxicity. No, never mind. <laughs> Readability counts. I like that. Readability is always, always counted to me. Yeah, absolutely. Special cases aren't special enough to break the rules. Well said. So, there's, so you know, one really extreme example that might blow your mind is there's not in the C-sharp sense a for loop in Python. There's not an indexed for loop, but for I equals zero, I less than whatever. Right. There is a for loop, but it's equivalent to the C-sharp for each. So for each is the only type of loop in addition to a while in Python. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah. There's ways to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. So although practicality beats purity is the next one, there are ways to get the index out of a for each loop, right? But, um, but you don't need a for and a for each loop to do it. Errors should never pass silently. In other yeah. words, don't swallow exceptions. Exactly, right. They, the exception handling mechanism in Python is basically the same as .NET. There's um, try and you say accept. You don't say catch. But other than that, there's try, accept, finally. Mm -hmm. And so you can catch based on exception type and hierarchies and all that. Absolutely. Oh, and the next one is unless explicitly silenced. <laughs> Wait a minute now. Hey, these are the Zen. I, I don't really, you know, know that they compile down to pure logic. <laughs> but first, yeah. the two things you don't want to read when in the manual to defuse a bomb, you know, step 10. But first. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. In the face of ambiguity, refuse the temptation to guess. <laughs> in okay. the face of ambiguity, refuse the temptation to guess. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Say, I don't Some know. Uh, that that, yeah. that applies in life, doesn't it, Richard? Absolutely. Yep. I mean, so yeah. much, so many human problems have been caused by making shit up when we don't know the answer. That that That's nothing has been more true ever than that statement right there. That's totally true. Yep. Yeah. So there's the, the next two kind of go together. There should be one, and preferably only one, obvious way to do something. Occam's razor. Yeah. Although that way may not be obvious at first, unless you're Dutch. <laughs> what I'm hinting at is the guy who invented Python, Guido van Rossum, is is Dutch. Of course Dutch, he yeah. is. Of course, yeah, yeah. All right, next one. Next now one. Now is better than never. Now is better than never. Yes. Sort of the analysis paralysis. Although the right. never is often better than right now. <laughs> exactly. These have to go in pairs. This is great. If the implementation is hard to explain, it's a bad idea. If the implementation is easy to explain, it may be a good. It may be a good idea. It may be a good idea. Not necessarily. Right. And finally, namespaces are one honking great idea. Let's do more of those. Okay. Now, and so that there's twenty. There's twenty of these, and those are nineteen in the list. Yeah. Um, the last one was not written down. So the you last one is for you. Meditate on this. That's right. You got to meditate yeah. on that one. I like it. It would be better if it was written in haiku, however. <laughs> it would. Very good. I know. I like that. And I, those, those are sort of universally, universally applicable to, to good programming practices in general, I think. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. The real point you get into now is 
how uh, these are implemented. I mean, you say to talk about the Zenith Python because there are very specific things you can point to in Python about supporting these aphorisms. The, but yeah. I think you could probably we could probably run down a few languages and talk about how they apply to these aphorisms. Mm. Right. Beauty think- is in the eye of the beholder. Just ask a Perl programmer. <laughs> and we're the guy who loves regular expressions. We could add readability counts except in Perl. <laughs> <laughs> then it's a sign of weakness. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh man. Readability's for the weak. That's right. And you got to if you really want to say that correctly, you have to use Klingon accent. So. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so you know what it seems like one another thing we might want to touch on really quick or just some of I could just really quickly mention some of the things that are in .net that we kind of think make .net super special and maybe even unique sure. that find their way over into yeah, parallels. In, in the, yeah, parallels, all right. So, you know, in in Python you'll see everything has a common base type and it's called object with a lowercase o. Okay. So, right when you create anything, it derives from object. It's like in in uh, .net. Very nice. We have for each. You have classes that can be iterable, kind of like Im- implementing iNumerable with like one fifth of the typing. Mm-hmm. We have properties. You can add like three lines of code to add uh, anonymous types to the language in the sense of sort of, you know, dynamically constructing these types as you initialize them and then working with the properties um, in a, some, semi, as much of a strongly typed way as you're going to get in Python anyway. There's an analogous, they have lambda expressions, mm-hmm. uh, almost exactly the same, just a different separator, more or less, right? So the cool little lambda expressions we're used to, you can do that. Link, there's a two constructs in Python called um, list comprehensions and generator expressions, which are very, very similar to link in the language. You got to switch the order around, and it's not quite as powerful, but you basically have something like link to objects, which is pretty awesome. You've got iterator methods, just like in C Sharp, you've got yield return. They've got that in Python. You have attributes, things called um, decorators, and serve basically the same role as attributes. You have namespaces and usings and imports, and obviously you have dynamic programming, NuGet, MVC, Entity Framework, JIT compilation, all that kind of stuff. There's direct analogies in Python, regular C Python, obviously. Right. So, you know, a lot of those things in that list are sort of like the reason I am a .NET developer and the things that keep me coming back to do C Sharp all the time. And when you realize, wow, Python has every single one of these in sometimes not quite as good a way, sometimes actually even better ways, it's like, wow, maybe I should spend some more time over here as well. And so I have been lately. I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah, and um, I think the um, probably uh, listening for this last hour, if I could reflect, you know, probably the most compelling reason to use Python is to be able to support that lower cost server framework, right? Yeah, that's that, I mean, that's, that's a huge really reason. That's a, that is a huge reason. Yeah, and the other one is, I think I want to write something that's going to run basically equally well on a Mac or on Linux or on Windows. Right. Right. And what are what are your choices for doing that? I could do Java, maybe. I could do C. I could do Python, right? And Python, you know, just this list we went through is a really compelling one of those things to choose for, for that reason. So uh, there's one more thing on your list, and we just barely have time to cover it here, but your your personal technology 
your personal technology, your midlife crisis technology. My, my, this is my technology midlife crisis. Yeah. So I've been doing .NET since like 2001. You know, I, I've shipped software on the beta before it ever came out. So I've been doing .NET for a long time. And, you know, Python is really the first language that I clearly like as much as .NET. And so now on all my new projects, I have to sit down and just think for a while, okay, what am I going to do this in? Is it going to be C Sharp? Is it going to be Python? And every time I choose, I sort of have the, um, the, the feeling of loss of the whatever other thing I would be able to do. So I have this sort of midlife crisis now that I'm, I'm in both of these worlds. And mm-hmm. it, it's, just, yeah, it's just interesting. I, I think if people get into it coming from a .NET side of things, they'll probably go through that as well. And where that pans out, you know, you'll have to see, I guess. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you, Michael. Thanks a yeah, lot. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. It's been fun. And uh, yeah, I hope, we, I hope we got at least a few people to go check it out. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting space, so I'll give it a look. Sure is. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MCA.